tear down this wall. Who said it? Anybody? Ronald Reagan. You're right. You get that A in history. Uh, he gave this uh, challenge. It was embedded in a speech that he delivered at the Brandenburg Gate at Berlin uh, in, on June 12, 1987. And he was there to commemorate the 750th anniversary of the city of Berlin. And he directed this challenge to Mikhail Gorbachev. And he said, tear down this wall. Not only did it divide east from the west, but it was a symbol of communist oppression. It needed to come down. 29 months later, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Berlin Gate was opened for the first time, and the wall was torn down. To the praise and the joy and the celebration of people who were once divided could now come together. And in a grander, more effective way, Christ does that too. Christ has broken down the walls that divide us. Writing to uh, the Gentile believers in uh, Ephesians, Paul said this in chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. To people who were once separated not only from the Jews, but from God Himself, He says this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the, offense, the hostility. God has broken down the walls that divide us. I think we can say confidently, it is not God's will that we build walls of division. I think we can confidently say what God has torn down. We have no right to rebuild. You can't build the kingdom of God and walls of separation at the same time. That's never going to happen. And Jesus knew that. And in Himself, on the cross, by the shedding of His blood, the things that once divided us and kept Him from, from Himself, kept them from Himself, are gone. Sadly, however... We have this, and I say we in the most general sense, we have this sinful tendency to build walls God has torn down. We do it. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Uh, And the consequence is deadly and disastrous. And this leads us to our text this morning, which we find in Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 13. So if you'll turn there, although the passage will be on the screen, if you would have your Bible and open it up so that you can take a closer look at it as I share some, uh, some words from that passage, you can have it before you. And if you don't have a Bible, if you raise your hand and an usher will come and give you one. Just raise your hand and I need a Bible. There we go. There's one at least. Okay, there's one over there. They would like a Bible too. Beginning with Mark chapter 10, verse 13. This passage, verses 13 through 31, and Pastor Kevin is leading us on these a series of messages through this wonderful gospel. We come to this passage of wall building. The tendency to build walls that separate us from one another and from Christ. Let's begin by looking at verse 13 in the gospel of Mark. Verse 13. 
and they, we assume the parents, were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now we don't know why the disciples did this, but when the parents were bringing children to Jesus, they said no. In fact, they rebuked them. It was stronger than just saying no. They were building a wall between Christ and little children. When Jesus saw that, he would have nothing to do with it. That wall needed to come down. You see, you don't prevent children from coming to Christ. Why? Because grace flows to the starting point. It goes where people begin. Grace reaches to where a little child is. doesn't wait for the child to catch up with grace. Grace rushes to the child. If it means just simply holding a child in your arms until that child is old enough to exercise saving faith, that's divine grace. You don't build a wall that keeps an infant or a young child from coming to Christ until maybe he's old enough. See, grace doesn't have that kind of boundary. It flows to the source, to the beginning, to the starting point where children are. Not only that, But Jesus held children up as the model citizen of the kingdom. What are children like? They exercise this simple trust in those who love them. They are completely dedicated, committed to those who would nurture them. And their motives are simple and clear. Unlike me and sometimes you, where we're jaded. By life. And we become skeptical. We're doubters. We don't trust easily. And our, our motives are confused at best and sometimes questionable at worst. And sometimes we can't commit to th- something more than a month at a time. Here's the model of the kingdom of God. And the disciples will say, you can't come to Christ who is the king of the kingdom. It's wall building. Those walls need to come down. Torn down. And the walls continue to be built. Skipping beyond the text this morning, uh, just a little bit further into chapter 10, there's another wall that's being built. I know Pastor Kevin is going to speak on it. It's the poor blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And Jesus is on the Jericho Road with those who are following him. And Bartimaeus, who is off to the side, hears the commotion. He finds out that it's Jesus passing by. And what does he do? He cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Isn't that wonderful, that cry for grace? Unfortunately, immediately the wall came up, didn't it? Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. So there's a wall between Bartimaeus and Christ. And who built it? Who put it up there? Was it Jesus? No, those who were following him. Way to go. You can't come. I know you're crying for mercy, but mercy can't possibly extend to someone like you. You're you're the outcast. You're one of those unable. You special needs people. 
You don't have a job. You're blind. You're poor. What do you have to offer? And so, so the social barrier comes up. But love and grace and mercy that extends to the very beginning, to the starting point of one's life, extends to the furthest reaches of society. It cannot be inhibited. It cannot be stopped by a wall. It must flow freely. The Pharisees often chided Jesus. Look where he is. Look who he's eating with. He's out there with those, those tax collectors, those sinners, the rabble, the outcasts. He even touched lepers, the untouchable, the unclean. Why? Because Jesus is full of grace and truth. There are no walls, there are no boundaries where grace and love can go from God. It must extend to the farthest reaches of society. Don't build a wall between Bartimaeus and Jesus. I'm not going to tell you what Jesus did. Pastor Kevin, I'm sure, will. But that's another wall. Later, when Paul and Barnabas were taking the gospel beyond the confines of Jerusalem and even Samaria, out into the Gentile world, and Gentiles all over the Mediterranean world were coming to Jesus, you think, praise God, hallelujah, the door is wide open, the gate is open, there's no barrier. And yet the wall came up immediately, didn't they? The wall came up. When Jewish believers in Jerusalem heard that Gentiles were coming to Christ by faith, what did they decide to do? <clears throat> Acts 15, verse 1. And it says, But when, when some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They built a cultural barrier again. And even the Jewish Pharisees who were believers in Jerusalem agreed with that. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So they built a cultural wall. And they were saying to the Gentiles, You Gentiles, to be saved, have to become Jews to become Christians. You have to adopt our culture, our rituals, our faith, or you can't be saved. Yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but you've got to do this too. Can you imagine an usher in the front steps telling parents, no, you can't bring in your infants. They won't understand. They're not old enough to receive the message of Jesus Christ. And all we'll end up doing is holding your kids for the whole hour. Just, just keep them back. And adult men, what will you tell them? You're not going to do that, are you? We're not going to put those kind of requirements on them. These social and cultural barriers just keep people from coming to Christ. And they exist today. When I was a pastor in uh, Toppenish, uh, we came, came to the conclusion that we needed to be involved in a Hispanic outreach in a big way. We wanted to hire a Hispanic pastor and give him the, the reign to reach out to the Hispanic community and build a church within our own congregation. And you would think that that kind of uh, ministry would take about a year to work out all the nuts and bolts. It took us three years. Why? Because every time that we st took a step forward to present this, a wall would come up. We tear that wall down and we moved forward and then another wall would come up. And we tear down that wall and go forward and another and another and another. In, in a sense, what people were saying is, well, if we're going to have a Hispanic ministry, they have to speak our language. They have to eat our food. They have to sing our songs. And they have to worship with us whenever we worship, wherever we worship, or they can't come. That's a cultural barrier. And it took three years to tear down that cultural wall. 
And finally, we had a church vote. 95% of the congregation said, yes, we need to go forward. The only people that disagreed and objected were two Asian families, and they left the church and never came back. We never saw that coming. We build these social and cultural barriers. And I remember back in 1968 when I was in the service and I was stationed at the Naval Air Station learning how to be a helicopter mechanic. I decided to go to a church in Memphis, 1968. And it was a hot summer day. It was Southern Bethel Baptist Church in Memphis. And all the windows were open, and we were singing praises to God. And right next door to us was another church. Their windows were open. They were singing praises to God. And I wonder why you needed two church buildings for believers to sing praises to the same God. 1968 in the South. Why do you think? It was all black and white. That church was all black. We were all white. What did we have between us? We had this racial wall of segregation. Now we've come a long way since 1968, but there are still remnants of that wall. So what we tend to do, starting with the children of all things, as we impose barriers upon others, we impose these barriers to the extent the social, cultural, racial barriers uh, that keeps people from becoming one with us and one with Christ. We do what we are told not to do. We build these walls. Not only do we impose walls on others, we even impose walls on ourselves. We build walls that keep our own selves from coming to Christ. As we continue the passage, look at verse 17, Mark chapter 10. We continue with this wall building that's going on. Beginning with verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things uh, I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Well, let's start with what this guy got right. I mean, he wasn't doing everything wrong. There were some things that were commendable that this young man had been doing. First, he came to the right person. He had the right question. He was concerned with the issues of eternal life. Now, is that the right question to bring to Jesus? Hmm, let me think. Eternal life, Jesus. Oh, I think so. It'll be a stretch, but I guess Jesus could work that out for you. No, I'm only being facetious. Of course, he's the right person. Who else would you go to with concerns about everlasting life? He nailed it on the head. He got it exactly right. He's the right person. Can you imagine going to the wrong person with your needs? Call a plumber one day. And tell that plumber, oh, I've had a fever for the last two weeks. I can't shake it. Can you prescribe antibiotics for me? He's a plumber. You need a doctor. He's the wrong guy. Calling a carpenter. And you say, my car pulls to the right. Can I bring my car to your shop? I need a front end alignment. Well, you don't need a carpenter. You need an auto mechanic. You call a guy who installs fences of all things. 
And you tell them, you know, I've been watching you install fences for my next door neighbor. You got the straightest fence posts I've ever seen. My daughter's teeth are so crooked, can you straighten them out? <laughs> you need an orthodontist. You, you don't need this guy. But when it comes to issues of in, eternal life, Jesus is the right person to come to. In fact, as I said, he's the only one you can come to. Because you see, eternal life is Jesus. He is eternal life. Eternal life is not something you gain in a book by something you do. You come to a person who is the living presence of God who gives you his presence in you. He lives in you. He gives you his life. You see, eternal life is Christ. To live, as Paul said, is what? Is Christ. It's not obeying laws or rules or following principles. It is Christ. Many passages underscore this. I'll just read you one. Writing to uh, uh, the believers, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 5 said, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son is life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. He's not only the right person, He's the only person. If you don't have the Son, you don't have eternal life. You will never get eternal life by making an end run around Jesus into Buddhism or Hinduism or, or what other ism that you could find. Christ is the only way. And He made it absolutely clear in John fourteen six, where He said of Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The life. The life. No one comes to the Father except by me, through me, because I am life. So he came to the right person with the right question. He was concerned about issues of eternal life. Some people have no concern for the hereafter. They're only concerned for the here and now. Fortunately, as young as this man was, he was thinking about eternal things. Some people con uh, condemn Christians and accuse them of being so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. But let me give you one practical, down-to-earth, here-and-now reason why you need an eternal perspective. You need to be thinking of eternal things. Why? Because an eternal perspective gives you a point of reference by which you can compare current experiences to. You need an eternal perspective. You need a reference point. To what would you compare your experiences of life today, especially if they're difficult and hard? What do you compare that to? If you have no eternal perspective, if you can't see anything beyond your present circumstance, then your present circumstance can easily become unbearable for you. Paul knew that, and he had suffered greatly. He knew the value of having an eternal perspective, of being able to co compare our present circumstances to glory, future glory. He said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Let, let me tell you this. It's just very practical. If you are experiencing some real difficult issues right now, if you have, don't have glory set before you, if you have no eternal perspective, where is your hope that things will be better? Where does it lie? You know how vulnerable teenagers are? Because they have a double dis disadvantage. Not only do they may or may lack an eternal perspective, they also lack the perspective of age. 
They just haven't lived long enough to see how problems can be resolved. I mean, half their life, their parents were solving the problems for them. They're just starting to solve their own problems now and realizing, boy, how tough a job mom did really have, didn't she? Figuring out how to get through these tangled web of of issues. But teenagers are just now coming into that, and they haven't lived long enough to see how difficulties are resolved in life. I'm 66, and I I look back to a, a lot of problems that I've had, but I've had years to see how they are worked out and resolved, and I can move on. But teenagers don't have the perspective of age, and if they don't have the perspective of eternity, of glory, of eternal treasures, a time when all of their present struggles will be swallowed up in glory, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more death, if they don't see that, And if they don't have the perspective of age, you know what decision they will make? The worst one of all. They will end their life because they see no prospect for change. Nothing better waiting for them. They don't have hope that things will be better tomorrow. And so to end the pain, they'll end their life. So teenagers have this, this great disadvantage. So it's a, it's a huge advantage to have an eternal perspective. Right person, right question. He had uh, the right attitude. He knelt before Jesus and he honored him, at least as a good teacher. Jesus had to, to call him on that. Well, what do you mean by that? Good teacher. There's no one good but God alone, so who am I? I'm not just an enlightened rabbi dispensing good goodwill tablets. I'm the son of God. Did you think about that? It it perhaps just went right over his head. But he had the right attitude. Humble reverence before Christ. The right attitude. He had the right motives. He sincerely wanted to know about eternal life. He wasn't like the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. They came up with all kinds of questions to ask Jesus. They didn't give a rip about the answers. What, they, what their motive was, was to impale him on the horns of a dilemma and expose him as the cheap, shallow sham they thought he was. Of course, he got out of those all the time, put the dilemma back on them, and exposed their evil motives as well. But this guy was sincere. He really wanted the answer. So he had these things right going for him. He had the right priorities. When do you come to Jesus? When is it important to you? Well, what did he do to demonstrate the priority of coming to Christ? He ran to him. While he was on the road, he didn't wait for a midnight rendezvous as Nicodemus did. He just took advantage of where Christ was. He ran to him immediately and and posed this question. You know, I just wonder how long we sometimes wait to resolve the most important issues of life. Oh, I'll come to Christ maybe when I'm old. And I burned up my youth, and then I'll become a Christian. I had young people tell me that a lot. Their priorities are all mixed up. But he didn't. He had the right priorities. And he was doing right things. And Jesus says, don't kill, don't steal, don't defraud, don't bear false witness, honor your mother and your father. And he says, I've done this. So he's been doing good things. So you put all of that together, and isn't he the kind of person we would want in church any given Sunday? Someone who is that eager, someone who had the right questions, someone who had the right attitude, the right motive, we would want that person to come in. And in fact, the church that I grew up with, that person was good to go. He didn't need anything more. 
He just needed to be persuaded that he already had eternal life. Because if you believe that God exists somewhere and you hadn't killed anybody by lunchtime, you were basically good. That's all you needed. So he had a lot going for him. He was doing a lot of right things. But for all of that, he did the wrong thing. He got it wrong. And what he did, as Jesus told him, he says, this one thing you lack, just one. Go sell everything. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. And you'll have that eternal life. That's the one thing you lack. And that hit him like a a, a thunderbolt. He wasn't expecting that. Why? Because he had built this wall of wealth that had been fortified and strengthened by his works righteousness. He wasn't intending to tear any wall down. He was just building his good works portfolio. He's got a lot of good works merit badges. He was hoping this enlightened rabbi would give him one more and he could put that on his sash and he could turn it in and receive the spiritual uh, Eagle Scout Award. But Jesus was saying, you've got a wall. That's what you lack. What keeps you from coming to God, what keeps you from everlasting life, is this huge, massive wall that you have built over the years that keeps you from God. And God didn't build it. He did. He loved money more than he loved God. And for all the good things he had been doing, obeying these commandments in the second tablet, he had been breaking the greatest commandment of all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. And he had broken that. Love with money was his God. He needed that wall. He was secure behind that wall. He found his identity in that wall. His wealth was himself. He wasn't ready and willing to give that up. When I was a kid, there were all these westerns. I don't know why, but boy. Uh, There were all these cowboy shows. Uh, Some of you might remember those. Rawhide, Wagon Train, uh, Bonanza. Oh, we saw it every Sunday night. There's Hoss coming. All of these big shows. And then there were these half-hour little uh, segments like Sugarfoot and Ty Hard and his Bronco Wayne and Cheyenne Bodie. And then you got Have Gun, Will Travel. And in Have Gun, Will Travel, I remember one incident where the actor, the character in the show was a guy named Paladin. And he was a gun for hire. Well, he would always be hired out to, to protect the oppressed against bad guys. And I remember in that one episode, uh, a guy had stolen bags of gold from this poor miner. And he was chasing down this guy, and they were fighting on top of the hill. And the, and the guy who was holding the, the gold fell off the cliff. And Paladin grabbed him by his boots and was yelling down at him, Let go of the gold! I can't hold you, you're too heavy. He says, No, it's mine, it's mine, I'll never let it go. He says, You've got to let it go. I can't hold you, you're going to fall. And the man said, never. And he slipped out of the boots to his death. He wouldn't let it go. Let it go. We need to make a song out of that. Anyway. This young man would not let it go. On the other side of this wall that he had built was Jesus. 
inviting him to come to himself. Everlasting life is right there on the other side of the wall. And this moment is yours. And you can put away those earthly treasures and you'll get heavenly treasures. You're not going to lose anything. You're going to gain. Come to Christ. And sadly, he turned her away because he had this wall. He wasn't willing to let go of and tear down. And you can say, well, why didn't Jesus just do it anyway? He knew all it was for his own good. So as the guy walked away, he says, okay, I'll tell you what. You don't want to tear it down. I'm going to tear it down for you. I'm going to strip you of your wealth, and then you'll come to me whether you like it or not. It's for your good. You'll thank me later. But what does the wall really represent? Any wall. It represents who you are. The wall is an expression of your will. It's your, your heart's desire. Yes, God could tear it down by sheer raw power, but that violence is not sparked by love. You see, Jesus, it says in the text, Jesus loved him. And therefore, Jesus could not tear a wall down that no one wants taken down. If you have a wall between yourself and Christ, you don't want it down. Don't think Christ is going to sneak up behind your back and rip it apart uh, while you were sleeping. It's still going to be there tomorrow. Now, we don't know what happened to this rich young ruler. He walked away displeased. The wind was taken out of his sail. Maybe, hopefully, later he came to a sense that he was convicted, and later he came to Christ. Maybe later he came to the church. But it doesn't look good right there, does it? Because he had built a wall. This wall building became an opportunity for Jesus, a teachable moment for his disciples, to teach to his disciples this issue of wall building. Continuing in our text with verse 23, he says this, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Here's an amazing truth. God is still able to tear down the walls that divide us. He can still do it. And you can say, Jim, I've asked God to tear this wall down, whatever it is. And he tore it down, and I rebuilt it again. And I asked him to tear it down, and he did. And I rebuilt it again. He tears it down, I rebuild it. He tears it down, I rebuild it. I'm, I'm, I'm defeated. I sense failure and hopelessness. And what should I tell that person? What should you tell that person? Ask God to do it again. Do it again. And again. And again. And again. For we read in Proverbs 24, 16, For the righteous man falls how many times? Seven. And rises again. One of these days, when that wall is torn down for maybe the fifth, sixth, seventh time, it won't be built again. And you'll be free. You'll be free. God is still in the business of tearing these walls down. Whatever wall you have can be torn down. But you have to say, yes, Lord. 
Maybe you can say, I built this wall. It's so big. It's so high. I don't even know where to start. I can't do this on my own. I need you to help me, Lord. Please, could you tear down what I am unable to do? But if you ask God, he can bring in the spiritual and physical wrecking crew and begin to dismantle that wall brick by brick. If you need TLC, tender loving care, if you need counsel, if you need uh, training, if you need accountability, God knows people. He can bring those people into your lives to help you. Because of grace and mercy, God brings people into your lives that can help you, hold you accountable. We can do things in this church. And beyond this church, the Union Gospel Mission has people there who love you. And if you have a need that you are struggling with, they can help you there too. But the bottom line is, God can still tear down walls. And he continues with verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. You We did what you told the rich young ruler to do. We gave up everything. And Jesus didn't chide him for this kind of a commercial quest or question, like, what do I get? He He didn't rebuke him because he did what Jesus asked the rich young ruler to do. So what did Jesus say? Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. There's an amazing grace, isn't there? The riches of God's grace is our, (laughs) it's a debate, Greater than the riches of man's wealth. You cannot sacrifice for what God cannot provide. When my wife and I went on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, we, I, I had a family who didn't understand me, didn't understand my commitment, and were not supportive of my decision to go on staff at Campus with uh, Crusade. And neither of us had a supportive church family. And we had to raise our own financial support. It took forever. We never reached the goal. And we only had a fraction of it. But we believed the time had come for us to go to our mission assignment anyway. We believed God was calling us to California State University at Northridge in the San Fernando Valley just out of Hollywood. What an expensive place to live. So we decided it's time to go. And we're just going to have to trust God's going to provide. We gave up our house, gave up our furniture. We left with only the clothes on our back. And my wife was nine months pregnant. We gave up our doctor. We had to sign a waiver for, the, for her to fly on the plane. We gave up our maternity health insurance. Yeah, yes. And we landed in the San Fernando Valley. And we reported to our campus director. And we said, here we are. God has called us. And he says, well, what are you looking for for, for housing? And this was my wife and I, our little two-year-old daughter, and uh, Josh was on the way. We said, well, we were, we're really hoping that God would provide a four-bedroom house. And he says, well, how much can you afford right now? And I said, $200. He said, a month? That's not a week. That's a month. I said, yeah, $200. That's it. That's all we got. He goes, <laughs> he shook his head and he says, you know, we live, my wife and I live in an unfinished, one, unfurnished, one-bedroom apartment. We're paying $400 a month. There's a housing shortage in the Santa Fernanda Valley. If you can find a house that's worth living in, it's five times what you can afford. 
It's impossible. To make a long story short, by the end of the week, my wife and I and our children were living in a mansion on 10 acres worth millions of dollars. We never paid more than $200 a month, ever. Yeah. Did we ask for a mansion? No, but we were asking for God's grace. And in his sovereignty, he owns Hollywood. Whether you believe it or not, he owns every house whether or a t- tent. He owns a mansion. And if he sovereignly chooses to make a mansion available to you, why not? You're going to get one in heaven, right? But I'm not talking about health, wealth, and prosperity. I'm talking about the grace of God that knows no bounds. For the doctor that my wife gave up was nine months pregnant, due with Joshua any moment, God provided Victor, Dr. Victor Hogan, who not only delivered our son and the next son after that, but was our family doctor for three and a half years. God provided. And then when my daughter got old enough, so she needed special surgery for her eyes. She needed double strobotomy, and it required a specialist. God provided that. And all of that put together, the specialist, the hospital, the surgery, doctor care, for three and a half years, my wife and I did not pay one cent. You can't out-sacrifice the grace of God. Your wealth cannot trump God's grace. And if God's grace also means that you live in a tiny little house with an ironing board for a table and an ice chest for your refrigerator and your wife, you and your wife sleep on a couch in a living room and call that your master suite and your kids can sleep in the tiny little bedrooms, that too is grace. My wife and I have known that too. But you can't give up what God can provide. Amazing grace. Amazing truth. Now let's put this all together. And let's talk about you. Talk about me. We know what the rich young ruler had to do. The wall he had. But what about yours? What about the wall in your life? That you have built up. That keeps you not from coming to Christ. But from following Christ. In full surrender. What is that wall? You call it what it is. Greed, addiction, anger, bitterness, lust. You call that wall for what it is. And when will it come down? For the challenge goes out to you as it has gone out to millions of people. Tear down this wall. Not tomorrow, not next week when it's convenient for you, but if you've got a wall in your life that's keeping you from being fully surrendered to Jesus Christ, that wall needs to come down. If you don't want it to come down, I guarantee it won't. But if you have a desire in your heart, God, you know what this wall is. I know what it is. I give this to you. God, Do what I can't do. Do the impossible. Bring down this wall today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes we have built things that keep us from you. And as you knew the the heart of this rich young ruler, you knew what wall he had. Right now, as 
we bow our heads before your sovereign grace and your mercy and your omnipresence and your omniscience. You know us. You know the wall that's there. Oh God, I pray that you might move in our hearts, that we might be willing to say, God, would you please help me take down this wall? I want you. I want your life in me. I want to follow you fully, completely, without hindrance, not distracted, not divided, but I want to give you my heart today. I don't want anything between us now. Is that the desire of your heart? Is it? Would you just take a few seconds here and would you talk to God? Do business with God. Lift up your heart to Him. Lay bare those needs that you have, the things that are lacking in your life, the wall that is between you and the Lord, and ask Him. Be honest. I know in my own life, I have built up some big, huge walls. And I thank you, Lord, that you have torn down these walls. I have experienced freedom that I have never had. I've experienced joy that I didn't think possible. But you made it possible. You made it happen. You took down this wall. And you allowed me by grace and mercy to come follow you. I pray that we can continue to do that, not only today, but tomorrow, and, and for the rest of our time here on this earth, that we might continue to follow you and trust you. I pray that for all the walls that need to be torn down, that in this place you would build a relationship with us that is strong and secure, that will protect us Give us security, give us hope and joy. The wall, the refuge that is you. Pray that you would build this new wall that would protect us and give us security and give us hope in the place of the wall that needs to come down. For this we pray in Jesus' name.